Hello, puppies and kittens, and welcome to the Petropolis podcast. I'm your host, Taz, and today's guest is Greg Keen, Vice President of Innovation and Product Development with Wellpad Company. I'm really glad to have you here with me, Greg, today. Let's rock and roll. Wellpad, that is one big company. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing great this morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is the first time we're we're talking. We just had one or two emails and then we just kind of, I said, let's dive in because I, I found your email to be really, I mean, it triggered me to just look outside this little silo of this massive pet industry that's treated like a teeny weeny um, opinion sometimes. So yeah. I'm well, just in it's jump in. Well, it's interesting, and, and 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 I had sort of the same view of Petropolis. I uh, I love listening to podcasts when I'm either working out or wake up early in the morning and and uh, having a cup of coffee. And I love the topics that you that you cover, uh, everything from you know how retailers, their perspective, brands to um, to behavior, animal you know animal behaviorists. I love some of the cat episodes. So, um, but you know you 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 you've helped enrich uh, my view of. Uh, of the pet world wow. in the past uh, couple of months. That's saying a lot. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, I know you guys are digging a little deeper into the cat side. Finally, I think people yeah. are seeing cats as as profitable as I've always known they were and pretty amazing as beings in our household. So I'm really glad that a company like WellPet is actually focusing on cats in a different way, seeing them as... How are you seeing them? Let's start there. Well, I mean, n- number one, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll talk about how you know brand wellness is is, is views cats. I mean, I'm I'm a I love I love the outdoors and nature, and I'm I've for years have been fascinated by by mountain lions and just how how, how beautiful of a, a majestic creature they are. Um, they're there, and nobody knows you know when they're you know thirty yards away. Um, they're absolutely beautiful. They're athletic. They're amazing hunters. And I've, I grew up with a cat who's ironically, uh, her name was Snoopy. Um, and, and she was an amazing hunter. So I've always had this, this appreciation for cats, uh, their, their presence in a home, but also their, their amazing innate abilities, uh, to, to be, uh, you know, really incredible hunters. Um, you know, the brand, the brand wellness, we've, we've, We've had a long history of um, really serving the cat community, um, very much so through our through our wet portfolio of of products. Our canned cat foods have always been they've always been um, grain free, so they're very meat focused, protein focused, extremely palatable, um, and just a great source of of nutrition for for cats. That also brought in a lot of hydration into into their routine. So. We've had great success with with wet cat food as sort of the, the you know the basis of our portfolio. Um, now we're now we're really looking to how do we understand about you know the ways in which consumers want to connect and you know be a little bit be uh, have their cats be a greater part of of their life versus just the routines of feeding and and maybe some padding um, during the day. What kind of what kind of products can bring consumers and their and their cats together, but also um, provide some, you know, nutritional or functional benefits to the cat versus just being, you know, I guess a quote unquote empty, 
empty calorie. So how do we bring that experience, but also, um, you know, bring some function to, to that, to those moments as well. You've been a well, at Wellpad for 18 plus years. So yeah. you've gone through the roller coaster ride of the pet industry and what it is and what it stands for. And you've seen the transitions of how consumers view their pets, how they buy, and how retail kind of maneuvers all this in the background. I always feel like retail is in the background, but they're loud. So yeah. can we start? And, and the reason why I even went into cat was because of your email to me it was that you've been listening to the kitty kitty cat podcast <laughs> i don't even know how to put it um but uh i just want to go back let's go back in time to when you started and then travel to where we are now and how the industry has moved when it comes to consumers and you as a brand your company as a brand and and um how retail has moved with it that's a Big, big question. And I know you're going to be talking for a while. So I'm going to sit back and drink my coffee and relax. <laughs> so it's, so just, it's interesting. When I, when I joined pet food, I came from the human food world before the natural and organic uh, industry. And it was, it was ironic to me because I came, I, I, I was mostly dealing with soy and plant-based products for, for humans. And then I came to the world of pet and you know, one of the first th things I heard was, you know, no soy. Um, and I was like, wait a second, I just spent the last two years uh, working on products that were, you know, touting the benefits of of soy. And that was sort of my first sort of like, you know, disruptive moment uh, of, of learning about the pet food industry and how how um, how brands are viewed and how they how they speak to consumers. Um, at the time, you know, Wellness uh, was was a small brand, one of the leaders, founders of the the natural uh, category, and was experiencing you know, really really amazing growth. And some of the key messages around um, the product and the brands at the time were really focused on you know the ingredients and the ingredient quality um, and and how those translate into the benefits and outcomes um, for for pets. So it was a very ingredient-focused industry, um, you know, around real meat, um, the types of meat, and the types of ingredients, and those are all extremely important things. But those were really the the basis of of consumers, you know, starting to think about, you know, what am I feeding my pet? Am I feeding the right types of ingredients? How do I eat? How does that how does that uh, influence you know the choices I make for my pet who can't speak for themselves? Um, and you know that was that was a that was a key focus for for the brand and a lot of the brands that we are competing with at the time. And there was a lot of growth at the time. You know, looking at the success of wellness, and at the time, um, really the the kings of the hill were um, Natura and their brands, Evo, California Natural, and so on. And I think that sort of opened opened uh, sort of the floodgates to brands that were not as natural to want to have products that could satisfy those offerings. And then it created this whole, you know, stream of investment into the pet food industry of, of brands that wanted to, I guess, be part of, be part of that, part of that growth. Um, we were already there. And at the time we were watching brands coming in. I think one of the things that um, I had a lot of conversations with, with people internally at um, wellness and then with other folks in the industry who've been around is, you know, can you just, how do 
people just come into the industry and just become a pet food company. Um, because my, my, my feelings and philosophy as a, from a nutritional nutrition perspective was this is, this is a huge responsibility. You know, we're not, you're not just a brand. You're not just creating pet food. You're creating the sole source of nutrition for a cat and dog. And it's gotta be perfect. It has to be complete and balanced, but it really has to be perfect if you're gonna help sustain, you know, the vitality and health of that animal. Um, and it, I don't wanna say it bothered me, but it, but it, uh, Made me, it made me think about you know, who's coming in and the speed at which they're coming in. And everyone has their founder's story. Well, I started because my animal was sick and they wouldn't eat anything on the market. So I created this diet. Well, it just happens to be another extruded diet. Uh, you know, you, you land, that's what you landed on. You put your, you know, create the branding and, and got it on the market. But um, it, it made me really want to actually dig my heels in even more and focus on making sure the quality of our products and the nutrition was even that much better. Um, it was something we didn't really talk about um, and, and maybe we could do a better job talking about it, um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of the brand, but it really made me and the, the people I work with and the people I brought in and hired to wanna actually do that much better um, for, for the pets that were eating our foods and really focus um, internally on improving our processes from everything from vendor assurance, how we bring in ingredients, what vendors we choose to partner with, um, to co-packers we work with, um, right through to how do we validate and prove that our, that our diets uh, um, are effective and safe and, and nutritious. So it really forced me, all the competition made, made, made us as a brand want to do that much better, quite honestly. So it's it had a positive effect um, on us internally. Tell me how the consumer's view of pet food has evolved over the period that you've been working at WellPet over the last 18 years. Where, where you were initially, they, they, you said that they were kind of looking at the better foods. They wanted something better for their pets. And, and of course, soy is not. <laughs> yeah. I'll take soy, but not for my cats or dogs. Um, have people become uh, more critical or uh, are they really digging deep into what's in their products or is it all still on the surface because of how brands are presenting themselves and was it and how was it in the past and how where are we now again my long-winded questions my apologies no it's okay I, I you know I I it, I believe there was a lot of trust that was that was being afforded to two brands, um, especially early on when I started in 2002. Um, you know, if, if you said your product was you know X, Y, or Z, and it had these benefits, and <clears throat> the ingredient label was you know this wonderful this wonderful um, array of ingredients, I think there was a lot of trust that people put into brands. And that came, you know, in part from, you know, just just because they were so so much better differentiated from the products that were mainstream and on the market in grocery stores. So it, it offered a really stark contrast uh, to the to the consumer. Um, and in in most cases, they saw the benefits um, when they did switch their their animals' food to whether it was their energy level or uh, their coat, and 
I think that helped grow the industry. But it, at some point, I feel like that there was sort of a, a trust bubble that occurred that that happened mm -hmm. and, and was and was created. And that trust bubble really, really broke in 2007. Um, With the Melamine fiasco. Yeah. And I believe that was that was sort of the the one of the you know first major inflection points that that I got to witness in in the industry was this um, sort of uncovering of you know consumers now learning about these ingredients may not all come from the U.S. Some might be sourced overseas. Why would they be using these ingredients? And then and then and then also understanding that you know there's 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 co-packers involved in the supply chain. I think some consumers just assumed that every single brand produced their own, they each had their own manufacturing plant. Because in some cases, the way, you know, the way, uh, you know, the brands may, may speak, it may, it may create that, that perception. So consumers weren't wrong to believe that. And quite frankly, there's, there are amazing co-packers out there that do a wonderful job and um, in many cases, probably a better job as a core competency than some of the, the brands. So I think that that relationship is is necessary and can perfectly perfectly okay. But I think to consumers, it was it was confusing. All these brands were being announced on the news, mm -hmm. and then they'd call and they'd ask. You know, they hear about Menu Foods at the time, and they they'd call and they'd ask, um, "Where is the food I buy?" And it would be you know some other some some brand, whether it's our brand or another of the natural brands and um and we we certainly disclosed we were honest with consumers and um because we had our own separate quality control pra practices uh for any products that are co-packed that are that are extremely deep but i think that was an inflection point i think that sort of created this this new um healthy healthy tension between consumers and brands that caused them to question things a, a little bit more and, and want to go a little bit deeper to learn about Who's, who's actually making the food that they're they're feeding their, you know, their, their family member. Is it, um, the, so trust is lost, comes 2007, all these animals are dying. Um, the menu foods was clearly not doing their part in quality control. I didn't feel, my, I had my, my store was open two years and I was livid about it, that the industry was so cavalier and they would make all these claims. And I went into pet, into pet retail because I didn't trust food. And you come from the human food side and human food I found to be not easy to trust um, unless you're buying locally. And that's always been my mindset. I'm type one diabetic. My belief system is, yeah, it's not even a belief system. It's my reality. And I, it is for a lot of people that food makes us what we are. It's our sole source of fuel. And if we don't manage that, what do we have really, right? Yeah. What's going to happen to us? It's all our responsibility. And that's how I saw it for animals. And I was very uneasy about, I'd go into the supermarket and I'd look at all these brands and I couldn't tell one, what one brand was, versus the other when you look at a label. And this is in 2002, 2003. I think we were too trusting, like you said. And Menu Foods, I don't know if it ended that trust, but um, everyone wants somebody to blame. So Menu Foods was blamed. 
where is the quality control? Where's the whole industry as a whole? What, I mean, where does a company like WellPet, what do you guys do? How do you pivot when something like that happens and you're in the mix of it? How do you pivot? And what did you do to change the perception and get that trust back? So, so I'll go back to, you said a word, it's a very basic word. Um, and it was one of the things that um, also I think has changed and migrated with the consumer over, over the years is, you know, and, and it, it, it does bother me and it's always bothered me um, from the moment I was handed, you know, an AFCO handbook. Um, <laughs> the, the word feed bothers me. Um, it, because you know this, someone has to. There has to be some some standard for regulation, and I, I understand it. But um, I don't. I don't consider. I don't consider my animals as livestock, and I don't consider any of our consumers, you know, animals as, as livestock. And feed feed. It feels like a lot of the regulation um, is is has been born out of. And it's. I think there there are amazing people involved and who really want to do the right thing for, for pets. But um, consumers don't look at the pet food as, as feed. And there's still a gap in the industry in terms of um, everything from how we source raw materials to you know, production. It, it's come a long way, but, but issues like Melanie in 2007, I believe that it had a positive effect on accelerating, accelerating um, brands, manufacturers view of this is, this is serious stuff. Um, we're, we're making products that, that um, could very much so increase the vitality of your animal, but it could also have harm as well. And that's something that needs to be taken extremely seriously. In 2009, and this, this um, was, was born out of not just the melamine recall, but also uh, the Peanut Corporation of America and, and the Salmonella um, recall really in, injury yep. to people, but the reportable food registry in 2009, and then not too long after followed the Food Safety Modernization Act in 2011. Um, the, the, these are these are these are um, laws that were that were born out of um, necessity. Um, brands and manufacturers needing needing to dig deeper and take a take a much more risk based um, approach to. How we how we manufacture food. So when we put it on the market, it's it's meeting it's meeting um, you know not just the the regulations but the food safety standards that are uh, you know, important to the animals. Can I just ask a question about FISMA? Does the FDA mandate? I mean, FISMA keeps evolve, evolving. Food Safety Safety Modern, Modernization Act started in 2011, but since then, it's kind of been left to hang. How are manufacturers well, really um, following what was initially put in place with FISMA? Well, it's, so it's, it's, it's critical. So, so the final rule actually came out in 2015, September. Um, and and it, I, I, lo I actually love what FISMA did. Um, and it, it is being it is being enforced, and what it requires it requires food safe, food facilities um, to have a food safety plan. So you you it, any company that produces we have three manufacturing plants. Every plant has a food safety plan, and what this what this plan does is it looks at the entire manufacturing process from receipt 
of raw materials right through um, the product being palletized before it leaves our warehouse. And we have to look and understand uh, at every juncture of the process, what, that, what hazards could be introduced or created as a result of handling and manufacturing ingredients and assembling them into a food uh, that could be a risk to a pet and then putting in the proper controls to make sure those, those, those risks are always managed and, and really mitigated um, in the manufacturing process. So that is, that's not a choice. We don't have, we can't decide whether we'd like to have a food safety plan or not. That is, that is the law. Um, and it's a, and it essentially uh, creates an environment where each manufacturing facility has to basically create their own law that you, then you have, to be, you have to follow. So when you do have an audit from let's say the FDA, um, they're gonna wanna see your food safety plan and they're gonna audit you against your own um, criteria that you've, that you've laid out for yourself for the production of food. And I think that's a- Go ahead, yeah. please go ahead. And I, and, and I think, I, I think taking a risk-based approach is, is, what, is, really what, um, is really what the FDA in the government and the lawmakers who passed it, that's what they want. They want companies to, to, take, a, to take a much more proactive approach um, in, in creating what they call the preventative controls. So what happens when we have a situation, and I know you can't speak about other brands, but you can speak to this. What happens when a Hills has the vitamin D issue? What happens with Midwestern and the aflatoxin where all these things could have been discovered because of the Food Safety Modernization Act or the quality controls that these companies yeah. have in place? Shouldn't these things have been caught and aren't, isn't that the whole point of safety and quality control, but if it's not being followed by manufacturing, who do we trust as consumers and as retailers? How do we trust brands? And this is where I think, um, you know, I want to say that we're more sophisticated as buyers and it, whether it's for our own use or for our businesses, but I really don't think we are. I don't think we're demanding that these companies um, be held accountable for their yeah. lack of uh, foresight and hindsight. I think that we are just really allowing shit to happen and not holding anyone accountable. Yes, I see on social media people shaming brands and making them look bad, but then we still let them continue and go forward in making the foods and doing the same thing over and over again and evolving and becoming another name, changing ownership, whether it goes from parents to children. It's, you know, it's a little bit dirty. And who do we trust? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a great question. And from a consumer's perspective, it's, it's the exact right, right question because it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I'll say in both the case of of the vitamin D recall and and the aflatoxin recall, they're not they're 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 a little they're a little bit different. Um, the aflatoxin um, issue is it's tragic. It's awful. I mean, the number of pets that have that lost their lives is in that that is absolutely preventable. 
trucks delivering any a grain. We don't we don't work with corn. We don't use corn, but we have other grains that they don't get unloaded until they've had um, until they've been probed in multiple spots um, and tested for aflatoxin. We don't we don't care. I don't care if there's a if there's thirty trucks waiting to get unloaded and people are upset that the truck is the grain is not getting unloaded um, to our plant uh, until it's passed that test, um, which is which is a quick test, extremely reliable, um, inaccurate. But if it's if it doesn't meet our criteria, um, it's not being unloaded. Um, we've not seen because we don't corn is is a much more suspect grain for something like aflatoxins, but that is. There's not many things. I think about all the things that in terms of our risks that we mitigate in our manufacturing plants. Um, aflatoxin is one of those things that I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, a beast on because that is not, that's an acute injury. Um, we don't want to have pathogens. There's a number of things we don't want to have happen. But if you want to hurt a pet, aflatoxin is, is unfortunately one of the quickest ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't want to use the word unforgivable. I wouldn't be able to forgive myself if I were associated with that. I think it's tragic um, in it in entirely pre preventable. But, you know, part of that, part of it comes with in, in listen, well, pet, our brands, we are, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think we're perfect and we're doing everything. We've always done everything uh, perfectly. We've had, we've had recalls, mm -hmm. but I'll tell you what, we've, 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 we've learned from them. I, I don't know, I feel like there's a mythical creature out there that, you know, with every injury gets, you know, grows harder, you know, thicker scales. Like, like we've, we've learned some things the hard way, uh, but in every case we've learned. And I'll, I'll, I, I believe one of the, one of the ways a brand, because somebody ultimately at a manufacturing plant in Midwestern was receiving corn. Mm -hmm. And um, it, they were either not well-trained, you know, there's turnover in, in these facilities, especially with COVID, it's hard to keep employees. So there's, there's, there's sometimes there's new people coming. I'm not saying that's what's causing it, but I know in the manufacturing environment, um, turnover can be an issue in terms of making sure people are trained. Um, there sale, a lot of pet food companies have seen increased sales. So there's a lot of push to move, move volume into yeah. th through the plant. There's a, there are a lot of things that could do that could work against you in terms of, in terms of food safety. But one, one of the things that's really the most important. Um, and in 2018, we, um, we actually, we're, 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 we're uh, not because we saw something wrong, but because, you know, one of our tenants of our brand is to, to continuously learn and, and basically continuous improvement. And, I watched the video. I was I was scanning some some videos around food safety, and I came across um, um, this brilliant woman, Lone Yepperson, who uh, worked at Maple Leaf Farms, and she has a company called Cultivate Food Safety. And basically, what she does, she worked in the industry in the human industry for for years, and she now has um, a consulting um, practice that helps brands, companies. Um, continuously evolve their food safety culture. And, and she, she has a, a scoring system that's based on a one through five maturity scale. And she you know, basically says, you know, where do you fall on the food safety maturity scale? Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, I, and I love the term maturity when it comes to food safety, because it, 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 it has the, the, that's the right word in terms of orienting where a company or somebody is in terms of 
um, how they think about and understand the, the, the relationship of what they do, whether you're receiving corn to formulating a diet to working uh, at the processing equipment that's making you know wet products or dry products or treats, whatever you're doing, um, if you understand why you're why you're doing it, how what you do can impact the safety and health you know of the end user, the animal, in your company from the top down, from the CEO down, is talking about this mm-hmm. has a quality policy statement, has a food safety statement. When we have town hall meetings with the entire company, is talking about food safety and giving it a platform. Of, of in terms of you know basically fortifying its importance to the brand and to the company and part of part of the ethos of why we're here. Um, it's from the top down, and that's where the maturity exactly is really key. It's from the top down, and when I see these issues with aflatoxin, things that should have never happened, and the vitamin D. I really believe that should have never happened. Yes, you're making, but again, from the top down. Exactly. Pretty love. I don't mean to romanticize it, but you kind of have to. There's, there's this. You know, they're they're holding them, themselves accountable for what happens, and when there's no accountability, we we're going to have a lot of sickness and death. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it 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 it's it's critical, and it's it's there. It's also critical that. Um, you never become complacent. So it's great to have statements and platitudes and and talk about it, but it's got to be backed up with training programs, um, retraining. Um, whenever there's an issue, it's a- addressing it quickly um, with you know root cause analysis and preventative. You know what kind of preventative actions you're going to take, and these are for small things. But you start to build this muscle memory across your organization that um that that that's critical and a lot of it you know quite honestly a lot of it is not doesn't it's not very sexy the people the 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 people who are leading um creating the trainings within our organization and the site directors at our plants who are putting hours and hours into dedicated into ensuring that food safety um practices are put into place it's it's hard it's it's hard work Mm -hmm. It, it doesn't it doesn't it's not something that no one's no one's thanking them. It's a it's a thankless job, but they un, they understand um, the importance to first first and foremost the consumer, the consumers, and the end user, and then to the brand. If we do if we do the if we do right by our consumers and, and cats and dogs, then the brand will be successful. Um, and we generally we generally don't talk about this stuff. I'm probably the first person publicly to talk about. Um, you know, food food safety and in, in our in our own evolution in terms of developing our food safety culture. But internally, we're we're extremely we're we're proud of it, and we see people uh, um, learning and 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 being educated throughout the process. Um, and quite honestly, there's nothing there's nothing better than you know when one of the plant directors tells us that um, you know one of their employees um, you know came to him and said, "Hey, we have a." A situation here that I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's right or wrong, but I needed to. I wanted to tell you about it just in case it could impact, um, you know, product in a in a negative way. And that's what you want: people speaking mm-hmm. up and raising issues. There's nothing worse than than a, a quiet, complacent organization 
that is it is afraid to share bad news um or the opposite in fact we have a we have a program just just thought of it uh called bark for food safety that rewards people for celebrating celebrating what could be potentially bad news i mean we we throw we we've thrown product away um and i'm proud of it perfectly said from the top down and you said lone yeppers was the yepperson was the person yepperson. okay cultivate yeah. food safety i i want to look at that. I, want, I want to definitely look that up and and um she, she has an extremely pragmatic uh approach and um she's been it's been fantastic um and, and we had such a great experience that uh we said you know let's we're gonna do we're gonna reassess ourselves every other year um and we have a, an action plan um, in terms of continuing to 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 evolve and mm -hmm. improve our food safety culture, and that gets revisited and in in and measured. And we have um, we have uh, we have monthly meetings. Uh, the our our senior team, sort of a steering committee, to actually track the progress to make sure that we're it's not just a it's not a one it's not an audit. And then you know here are some actions. Uh, we, we have to see tangible pro, uh, progress being made um, over time, and that's on a month, monthly basis. Uh, so we're, you know, we're 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 uh, it, it's it's against time dedication, but it's it's necessary and mm -hmm. um, and it's critical because we 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 don't ever want to move backwards. We have, we just want to keep moving moving forward in terms of how we uh, uh, the standard we hold ourselves to. Okay, so let's look at the perspective of the mainstream brand. Um, you're not the only mainstream brand. There's tons of others who we just talked about two of them who happen to be, you know, go through some pretty devastating um, quality control issues. Um, how does a mainstream brand pivot when there is a problem like DCM. So, so num number one, I, I, I this is the, the the it's the wrong word to say to say gift, but whenever there's anything in the industry that could potentially um, be bad for animals or or brand, the 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 first thing you shouldn't do is say you know you know but the grace of God go I. The, the first thing you, I believe you should do is say could this happen to us? Mm -hmm. Could we be part, could we be part of the problem? I always look, I, I always look to ourselves first. Um, and how did we contribute to it? Um, are we contributing to it? Um, so there's always an, an internal, an internal view first. Um, well, you, you have your main line is a grain in formula anyway. And then correct. you have the uh, core core formula that's grain free. You have so many SKUs. I mean, yeah. The mainstream brands have so many SKUs. And um, as a consumer and a retailer, I sit back, I'm like, oh my God, the redundancy here. What am I really buying? What is this yeah. really all about? And I know you're in innovation and product development. So yeah. sometimes I just think is more really the right way to go. And then when DCM happened and these brands came running with new formulations with the ancient grains and blah, blah, blah. Um, I lose, I think that they're losing touch with reality. I think they're rushing and reactive as opposed to 
concentrating and refocusing and going within to see, is this affecting us? How are we affecting the consumer? Are we part of the problem? What you just said. So, yeah, I know you well, can I, talk for yourself. It's just tough to look at what everyone does. And you would, I wind up kind of throwing well pet before knowing you. And even, you know, it just becomes natural to throw all the brands, mainstream brands within the same bucket. So, so let me. I'll, I'll go to go back in the wayback machine and tell you just a quick story because this is this is this is was fun for me. Um, I love nutrition. I love biochemistry. Um, I, I could geek out on that stuff, um, uh, you know, for for hours. But I re I, re I remember exactly where I was sitting in two thousand and three when I got a phone call from uh, someone I respect tremendously, who's a PhD in animal nutrition and and has been working with us ever, has been working with us, me for 18 years. Um, and he, he would share any new research or articles that, that came out uh, with respect to animal nutrition. And he sent me across an article, uh, a period of the abstract um, of the peer reviewed research that came out of UC Davis in 2003. Um, I think it was Andrea Falsetti uh, who looked at, looked at Newfoundlands and the connection to DCM and a brown rice, a lamb and rice formula. And, and, and when we talked about it, um, the, the subject came up, well, geez, if we have a lamb diet, you, you have limiting amino acids that are precursors to taurine. Um, and, and we also know that the rice brand probably played some role in that, but let's, why don't we be safe? Because we know, we, you know that adding taurine is not going to hurt the animal if we add it, um, you know, exogenous taurine, mm -hmm. but, but let's make sure we're doing the right thing and make sure this never happens. Cause we know large breed dogs could be feeding our products at the time. We didn't have lar a large breed diet in the market. And then I, and then I said, I said to him, I said, well, uh, how, I would actually like to be really safe and add it to all of our dog foods. We already added to our cat foods because it was required, but nobody was adding it to their to their dog diets at the time. And in 2003, we made a decision to put taurine in every one of our dog diets and have done so ever since then. So we've always been supplementing taurine in our grain in, grain uh, or grain-free diets from day one. Mm -hmm. um, it, so I don't want to, you know, I, I, it's not that we were perfect. We it was a, it was probably a a. 30 minute phone call. And I don't want to say it was being reactive or we were being reactive, but it felt it, it, it there was something intuitive that felt like it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And there was enough, enough research um, at the time when we looked at, you know, other research on that was, that was in the field around taurine and DCM that it just seemed like the right thing to do in terms of, in terms of grain free and in, 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 in grain in diets. Yes. We've, we've always had, we've always had, um, our, our brand was launched with, with grain inclusive, um, ingredients as, as part of, as part of the recipes. And then we launched our core lineup, um, that started in 2006 with core cat, core cat. And then we launched core dog in 2007. Um, you know, that gr grain that we try to, we try to offer consumers choices. So we understand that consumers, um, are looking for diets that don't include grains. And we wanted to make sure that we had nutritious op op options for them 
for that consumer to meet the, that consumer's needs. But we also wanted to have options for the consumer that their dog did just fine with some grains in the recipe. When we decided to launch Core Wholesome Grains, that was really um, that was really kind of digging again back into our Wayback Machine. We created diets that looked very similar to that back in 2007, 2008 um, already, looking at um, some of the insights around consumers that didn't necessarily um, want or care about grains per se, but they wanted a higher protein diet. So core wholesome grains was really delivering more so on uh, the consumer that was focused on higher protein, um, but but would have, you know, but okay the, with does grains. Does the consumer really know what higher protein means or is it just words because of how brands are marketing, especially when it comes to kibble and the lack of digestibility profiles that brands um, don't do? Yeah, well, uh, it's some, you know, we're, we're going to be posting some digestibility results on our uh, most recent uh, innovative launch, which is a core digestive health. Um, you, where we see that you can achieve, you know, 85 plus percent digestibility um, on a on a really well formulated diet, um, pretty handedly, and, and have great stools as well. I, I think it's a, I think it's I think it's really interesting to. Um, it would be great to see more brands, um, including us, put that type of information and make make it available because it does two things. Number one, it it shows that you validated your products. Um, and, and if you haven't just put together a formulation and it's in a pretty bag that you're, you're actually investing in time and energy to, to ensuring that your products, um, are going to deliver on, on that one aspect. Um, you know, we, we've been doing, we would never launch a diet that didn't have stool, um, analysis, digestibility analysis in a full nutrient profile. Um, so you're saying your diets all have digestibility analysis, all your diets? Yeah, they do. Yeah, and we're currently, we're currently, uh, um, all of our diets, we've done these in the past before, but um, our diets um, over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, we'll be looking at uh, getting results for AFCO feeding trials as, as well, because it's, it's, it's important to, to also understand the, you know, the, the, uh, influence your diet has over, over a longer, um, term feeding as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you're going to share that data with, with the consumer and the retailers. Yeah, we plan to. Yeah. It, 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 it depends on the, you know, a little bit of the form we haven't totally decided a couple, a couple of years ago when we did some, some trials, we shared, we shared it more with respect to the, the outcomes in terms of the benefits that the animals saw. Um, our, our plan with the research we're going, um, that we're conducting now, and we'll continue to conduct over the next year and a half, um, it could be a white paper that has the results in a little bit more, more detail. So, and then probably some, some, uh, information on our website as well, but a white paper would probably go into much greater detail in terms of, in terms of the, the science. Yes. Okay. It's good to hear that after all these years, you're going that route. That's wonderful. Well, we have, you know, we have in the past, um, we, we just haven't ever talked, we haven't really talked about the, the results. We, um, you know, as an effective DCM, this is, uh, I thought this was a uh, uh, really interesting research. Now that we had 
basically two diets, the core diets that were grain-free in the core diets that were you know, having wholesome grains gave us the opportunity to run. Um, we were curious, but we also wanted to ensure that you know, there was no effect of, of let's say the grain-free sources on, on the metabolism and recovery of taurine. So even though we were supplementing with taurine, we put both diets on a head-to-head -head trial for six months where these dogs were fed uh, core original uh, with grains and core original without grains. And for six months, we collected, uh, we collected data to look at whole, whole blood and plasma taurine levels and uh, as well as taurine uh, creatinine ratios and, and to make sure that there was not a lot, a lot any loss through the urine. And what we found was the diets performed identical in terms of, in terms of taurine recovery. Um, we were pleased to see that, but that was a, that was a, that was a pretty significant investment um, in, in feeding animals for six months and data collection as well. And, and you that also collected data for digestibility as well, correct? Yeah, well, the, both those diets um, uh, before they launched onto the market um, have had, Core Original has been on the market since 2007, so that's probably had digestibility done, tested, you know, at least a half a dozen times. And then the diet that it was tested against, the core wholesome grains also had digestibility. Um, can, can I tested. ask you really, I mean, what's, why come out with a core wholesome grains versus your base brand, which already has grains in it? Why so many SKUs? Why so much? Um, so the main, the uh, wellness complete health diet is um, a diet that has a great nutrition, but it's based on a lower a lower protein um, guarantee and, and a little bit lower fat guarantee. Mm -hmm. So we wanted we we really wanted to have a product that um, met the needs of of our current core consumers, um, but 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 that may be concerned about we can't help we could not help um, what our consumers would be reading or the messages they'd be getting from their vet, their veterinarians. We heard many times, um, you know, really since even the beginning in, in the summer of 2018, that consumers, uh, our own consumers, would take their, their dog for their annual vet checkup and they, they would leave with a, a, a pamphlet, a flyer that talked to them about the dangers of, of, of feeding grain free. That's the, this is what my concern, I mean, you, I don't know if you heard the podcast I did with Ryan Yamka and Nikki Kamek. We talked about no, there were no studies validating, well, one, validating the whole DCM uh, problem. And, um, and a lot of vets weren't really reading anything out there. They were making assumptions. And it all started with a blog post by a veterinarian. So this is where... When you're doing it, when you're developing products as you do and innovation, when you put that all together, which, how much of that is based on science and how much of that is based on perception and what you think your consumers want? I mean, I assume you develop personas for who your consumer is, right? They have their names, what they are, price points, what they feed their animals. But those personas are about the people 
and not necessarily about their animals. And are we teaching or are we destroying by creating more and more and more? Are we creating more and more confusion? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I do remember <laughs> running into um, someone from Pet Food Industry Magazine uh, a number of years ago at a trade show. And she asked me, so, you know, what do you think? What are you seeing? And the first, my response was, well, we've, we, this, this, at this particular trade show, uh, well, we've just ruled out two, two ingredients that everybody's using that we thought were good that are no longer good anymore. And this is when there was another grain free product that came out that said, you know, potato free. And I was thinking, wait, potatoes, wait a second. I thought potatoes were good four years ago when everyone launched grain free. And then I'm thinking, if, at some point, at some point, we are going to say every ingredient is bad. There's no ingredient that's good anymore, or or the or the, or or my running joke, and I, I've heard other people say this as well. So it's it's not that original. Is that eventually we're going to come full circle around and we'll be using corn again in super <laughs> premium diets. Uh, you know, it's it's just going to go full 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 circle. And I I wonder about this a little bit because it, there's a there, I'm very consumer centric. And that's, that's my innovation hat, but I'm also very science based in terms of, in terms of how I view nutrition. And uh, it, it's, it, it's a little bit, it, I have to bite my tongue sometimes uh, as, as I, over the years, as I look at, as I look at the messages, the messages that brands do send consumers and then consumers reinforce those messages. I mean, grain, grain free, when, when we launched um, those, those products in 2006, 2007, it was a very small portion of the market. Um, and now it's, now it's, it's significant, although, it's, although it certainly had some decline since, since DCM. But what I, what I saw was all these new brands coming into the market and how do they differentiate? And it was, it was about what ingredients they don't use or it was more grain-free. And now, and now you have a whole sea of consumers that think grain-free is better than grained. Um, biochemically, the, the animal doesn't, doesn't totally know what, if, it's, if the carbohydrate is coming from potato or, um, or barley or, or rice. Um, it's more important to have a very, a very well-balanced diet that's supplying all the complete and balanced nutrition to the animal. But I thought you were going to say something. I was. <laughs> Thank you for stopping. I appreciate that. But in saying that, our vets are handing out pamphlets about grain in food versus grain free. And you guys are coming out with SKUs that are higher fat, higher protein, and have these grains. Um, and nothing against grains, nothing about, there's, I'm not talking down anything here. Where I am going with this is as a mainstream brand, as a manufacturer, there is some giving into that conversation that you have to do, it seems. I, you know, when I sit back and I watch the mainstream brands as well as the smaller brands, everyone kind of bows down before doing the research. And I always wonder why don't we just stand up and say, okay, this is the research we've done. Here's the reality. Your animal doesn't know whether it's eating um, potato or barley unless there's an actual physical 
reaction, right? If they have a real allergy, a real allergy, right. as opposed to an intolerance where they just can't handle something. It could be multiple things they can't handle, or it could be dust on your floor that, you know, your vet immediately says, do a, do a limited ingredient diet. It, we have to, if we have to go back to the vets who are not in the mix of what's happening in manufacturing, who are just looking at the symptoms and reacting just as much as the consumer is, where does manufacturing come into play here? Where, when do you stand up and actually make a case for what is real versus what is perceived? Sure, so, you know, at, at, at the moment, our 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 focus with the consumer is really or the relationship with the consumer is is empathy they're confused they don't know they don't know uh necessarily when you go to a store they're a new consumer to the space it, it must be horribly confusing um in terms of what to choose but in in, in the end you know at least for for wellness and well pet our, our our goal is to meet the consumer where where they're where they are at um so we have we have a couple options you know we we can't necessarily have that conversation with every single consumer that gets that pamphlet and that and that you know um, whatever you want to call it uh, in terms of the science that's that's being conveyed to them. But we could meet the consumer where they're where they're at, and we do know that we we feel very comfortable in our approach to how we how we both formulate diets. Um, we know that we have a, a, a raw material nutrient database that. You know, probably houses. Uh, we've probably invested a million dollars in 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 uh, lab analysis, so that we know we know exactly what every ingredient is going to deliver, and then we validate that once we produce the diet. So we know how to formulate and put together a really great diet that meets that consumer where they're at in terms of do they want a grain or grain free. I think your larger question is 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 a is a really good one. You know why don't why don't we engage in sort of that that battle that you know push hard against mm -hmm. against the vets um, and and make that case? I think the best I think the best way to 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 do that is is in sort of to coalesce with other brands around and and, and basically pool money fund fund money to uh, to really make that that case. I think it's very difficult. And this sounds like a cop out, but I think it's very difficult for any individual brand to to stand up and and make that case. And it's if you can imagine, I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, wellness, you know, standing standing up and telling you know the veterinarian community um, who who they they may not have. Um, I, I don't know what their feelings are towards you know, the, the natural brands. Um, there's definitely a feeling out there that that. In, in general, they support brands that are not only mainstream, but are from some of the major, you know, players in the in the market today. Yeah. Um, it's 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 uh, we hadn't we hadn't really had the thought of how do we stand up and, and necessarily push back on on that community, but it was more about how do we how do we meet consumers where they're where they're at, especially if they're nervous. I mean, the number of consumers I spoke to that had a dog that were feeding grain-free that would ask me because they know the business I'm, I'm, I'm in. And these are people I know very well. They trust me. In some cases I've known these people for a very long time. Um, in the end, I still had a very difficult time 
not that I was trying to convince them to stay on grain free, but in, in one case, someone had a golden retriever and they and, and I could see from the, the tone, their, their facial expression and the tone of their voice that um, the depth in which they cared about the nutrition for that animal um, was so deep and so powerful that in some cases, you know, I, even, even if I could tell them and talk to them about the science and the, the fact that we've added taurine for years and, and, and convince them, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't have felt right because in the end, I want, them, I want them to feel comfortable and feel really good that what they're feeding their pet is the best thing. So in some cases, maybe, maybe I was aiding and abetting the veterinarians that were saying switch to, to a grain in diet. But these, some of these conversations were, were, were very powerful and emotional. Um, and you could see, you, you could just feel the love between the, the person I was talking to and their pet. Um, and the and fear, I, I assume, I assume the person was afraid that this could happen to my dog and I don't want it to. And it has to be, I have to make the right choice for them. And they're being led by misinformation. So they, they, they are, and, and I would, you know, and I, and I would have that conversation and I, um, you know, about I'm, the misinformation. I'm sitting here yeah. frustrated with you, Greg, because <laughs> <laughs> you're going around in a circle and here, look, we have pet food companies educating our vets right now. We have pet food companies ed educating our veterinarians in school about nutrition. That's, that needs to change. And, you know, you hold up that AFCO book. I have the current one. Yeah. Um, maybe the whole process of how we are teaching our vets needs to change so they don't get pigeonholed and only focus on feed your pet Purina one, feed your pet science diet. And then Everyone assumes because the vet says it, they, these companies are had recalls or these companies don't make mistakes because they are bigger and mainstream or louder. Sure. So there is a frustration and I get that empathy with the pet owner, with that golden retriever and the fear of grain in versus no grain. But as the vice president of innovation and product development for a mainstream brand, you have to look at innovation. You have to look at um, your consumer. You have to look at your product. You have to look at everything. You have a big job, massive. Um, you know, one of the- Focus is, your focus, I mean, how do you, it's, I, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. I don't know what to ask you. You know, I get that that confusion, but shouldn't it be about the people that are that that the consumer trusts? And and it shouldn't be retailers because they come to us when they get frustrated with our vets, right? The pet retailers, and then we do a disservice because damn, we're dumber than I'm not talking about myself, you know, but <laughs> But some of the shit I hear is like, Whoa, who told you this? But then I have that's telling people to add rice to a food that doesn't have the additory. So we're screwing up our animals left and right. And by, by not being honest, where's the trust? 
Yeah, so so you know, I, I would actually go all the way all the way back to um, you know what are the who are the brands out there even before you even get to something like DCM, DC, DCM is you know we're we're having to deal with the fallout of a very poorly vetted uh, and, you know lack of analysis before there was a statement that was made in broadcast. Um, so we're so so that's this is this to me is frustrating is probably the most frustrating piece of it is that you would expect more scientific rigor um, mm -hmm. to, to be put behind um, that. But in terms of the the, the trust uh, going even back to what we talked about with food safety and food safety culture, you you could create a very good diet that has grains or is grain free. You could create a very good freeze dried food, a great semi-moist food, a, uh, a raw food, a fresh food. These are just choices that consumers have. But I think in terms of, in terms of the trust and the many brands that are out there, I think the thing that, that I, would, I, would, I would love to see um, just across the industry is, is I guess more, more commitment in terms, of, um, in terms of how, what kind of investment people or brands are making in their diets before they are put onto the market. I'm sure I could walk into uh, whether it's, you know, it's any, any, most pet food stores, and there are probably very few brands that have like cat food, for instance, that have done, you know, urinary pH trials to make sure mm -hmm. that their, their diets, you know, are, are going to yield on average a, a diet that is um, gonna, gonna be safe for the animal. Um, have they done digestibility scores? Do they have nutrient profiles on their products? But even, even, even beyond that, were they produced in an environment that has a food safety plan? What's the vendor assurance program that is, that is overseeing the raw materials that are being put into those, into those recipes? What are the plant's critical control points you know, from, from pathogens to metal detection? Um, you know, are you doing positive release? Well, that's great. You're doing positive release for pathogens, but I don't really care about positive release. I care about environmental monitoring. Do brands know what environmental, you know, a lot of these brands in stores, do they ensure that their manufacturer or if they're self-manufacturing are doing environmental monitoring? Um, I feel like there's, there's a, there's just a basic level of, of, uh, diligence that, that I, I don't, I, I suspect isn't isn't being isn't being conducted uh, in a widespread way across across the industry. Uh, that 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 should be, and I think that's where that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see brands be more vocal about about those processes. Um, even be, you know supply the great great nutrition, but what do you what are the fundamentals that you're that you're putting support and energy behind to ensure that. The, the products in, it produced in the right environment with the right level of diligence, you know, behind the raw materials being sourced. Hmm. Okay, man. I feel like, I, I have to tell you, I feel like we've talked a lot, but I'm just not sure where we are right now <laughs> as far as our conversation. I'm sorry to say that to you. <laughs> I have to, um, 
I do have to say one thing about your brand. You guys are everywhere and accepted by everyone. Everywhere from Walmart, Petco, Whole Foods, and in, in Indies. Your brand is friggin' everywhere. And it is so widely accepted. And you've gone from a little private, well, you're still a private company, but you're, yeah. um, it, you have private equity, right? It's so your company's funded, it, it, has that affected the way the companies run? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great question. You know, one of the, one of the things I was, I was delighted uh, about even er early on um, after the Scott family sold the business um, to, to private equity originally, maybe we've just been, I think we've been really, really fortunate to have amazing, amazing owners because there have been there have been a number of situations where I, I would actually have to go and make a proposal for spending not just a, a little bit more money but a lot more money to um, to impact our how we source raw materials or our manufacturing process to amplify uh, and improve um, the production facility and in every single um, instance money has been approved. So in, in, in those respects, I would say um, the, the ownership that we've had throughout, throughout the years from the Scott family through today has all been really, really supportive. And I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a, um, I don't think that's a fluke. I, I feel like we've, we've, there, the, we've all had the ability to kind of, to some degree, you can't exactly choose who, who's going to, who's going to own the, own the business or the brands, um, but there's a lot of relationship building, you know, during due diligence where you mm -hmm. learn a lot about each other, and we've been we've been very very fortunate to have been paired up um, by really really extremely supportive businesses um, right through right through to today where you know we're having conversations about further investment um, in nutrition, food safety, quality, and. These are these are great conversations. No one, we don't feel we feel like we can have them openly, and um, and we we get the we get the support that we needed. So it's it's been great from that standpoint. I'd say one of the other effects that we've had is you know as we as we've grown, we've had we've had a lot of you know really great individuals um, come to the business and be attracted to the business who have you know, great, great leadership um, and really great, you know, skill sets and talents across this industry and other industry to, to basically ensure that, um, you know, we're more successful at, at both, you know, the production of our products, but the delivery and, and communication of our products. So everything from operations through, you know, how we, uh, how we, how we market the products. I feel like we've had, um, we've increasingly uh, attracted talent that is, that has made us, uh, you know, better. Uh, we're always trying to be perfect, but I think that's been the main effect of, of ownership uh, over the years. Um, uh, Jim and Janet Scott, I have so much respect for them and, and they have, they own the brand Roz uh, now. And um, I know Jim well. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I have no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> and Janet. And Janet. Wonderful people. They really are. And uh, what you said about the top down when it comes to um, management, ownership, uh, protocol, that does matter. And uh, 
yeah, when you look at someone like the, the Scott family and how they transitioned well pet and the relationship building process, I guess it goes hand in hand with the integrity that comes along with um, quality and uh, you continue to carry that through uh, what you put out to the consumer. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate the time you gave me today. And I'd like to um, perhaps schedule uh, some time to speak with you again about sustainability, because I know you are on the Pet Sustainability Coalition board. Yeah, I'd love to talk so about that. That's something that is um, near and dear to my heart. And I have very many concerns relevant to, to sustainability in the pet industry. And uh, where we are <laughs> and the perception again, but I, I'd like to pinpoint that conversation have real, real uh, um, answers from you. I'm going to challenge you on that one. So if you're okay, I definitely want to schedule something again in the future and speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've a lot of thoughts and, and opinions and uh, I would say we have some really, really interesting things uh, going on that we're, that we're researching right now. Good. We can touch on AFCO and sustainability and what food <laughs> is all about when it comes to feed. <laughs> yeah. Someday, maybe someday in our lifetime, it'll be, uh, there'll, there'll be, uh, you know, it, the change will change the word from feed to food. Oh, from your mouth to someone's ears. <laughs> Greg, yeah. thank you so much.